Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. So welcome to another GodPod, and uh, today we are in a slightly different uh, venue from normal. Normally we uh, are in our little room in St. Melitus College, but um, today we are at uh, HTV's uh, Focus Holiday, which is a kind of annual holiday for um, all the people from the Holy Trinity Brompton Church and church plants. And so we're, in a, we're basically in a field in the middle of Hampshire, I think. Is that where we are, Hampshire? I think so. Yes. I think it is Very Hampshire. Nice Great and um, so, although we're actually not in, in a field, we're actually in a sort of what feels like a bit of a caravan in the middle of a field. So it's um, a bit like where we started, isn't it, Graham? And the hut in the grounds of HTV. It is Do you very remember? much like yeah. as we started. Our very first ever Godpod. Taking yeah. us back to the early <laughs> years. And so we have our microphones here, but they're attached to a chair, which is all slightly strange. But um, anyway, so if you hear noises in the background of um, children screaming or. Um, music playing then that's probably what it is you can uh that's not up. us <laughs> certainly not us no you, yes we're not we're not any of that um so you can just um soak up a little bit of the atmosphere by being here but today we have um a special guest with us so um it's me graham and we also have jane here as you've probably heard yeah. already uh, but we also have uh will van der hart hi it's great to be here good so will it's um, wonderful to have you with us on godpod um will and i go back quite a long way i used to teach Will many years ago. That's right, Reformation studies. Exactly, when he was a theological student. Yeah. But um, Will now is um, uh, the director of an organisation called Mind and Soul, and uh, he is also the pastoral chaplain at uh, HTB, looking after quite a lot of the pastoral work that goes on within um, within the church. So, um, Will, tell us a bit about yourself, about what you do, what your interests are. And, um, well, um, yeah, I've been a priest now for, I was thinking, 13, 14 years um, in the church. I um, Yeah, and I feel far too young. I, I was sent a letter by the diocese recently telling me I had still had... 38 years and 176 days till I was of a pensionable age. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking to myself, goodness me, is that how much I've got left? It makes you realise your station um, in life. What a yeah, joy. It is an absolute joy, of course. <laughs> but yeah, it seemed like such a long time. But yeah, I was quite young coming to the church, um, married to Louis, my wife, who's a journalist, and um, we've got three young children. And um, I've worked in a few different settings. I've worked in inner city London, um, and I've uh, worked in suburban London out on the fringes uh, running yep. a church out there and now back as a, a bit more of a specialist really at mm. um, HTB which is a great place to work with you know, mm. great sort of breadth of my job but also I'm not responsible for everything like yep. I was in the parish so yep. that gives me a little bit more flexibility to focus tell, on some of those areas. Tell us about Mind and Soul and what its focus is and what its vision and mission is. Well um, I've always been interested in mental health um, and uh, my grandma was quite depressive and I think I remember sort of watching that play out in my family. She's a lovely woman, but really struggled with kind of low mood, particularly in the morning. And I remember, as, even as a younger child, finding that fascinating, her sort of roll through the day. And um, so th there was definitely an interest there. Uh, and I, um, at, actually, when I was studying at Wycliffe, Graham, I think um, you or someone sent me off to a senile dementia clinic for my eight-month placement. 
which was a really fascinating and really formative time in my understanding of the human mind and how our faith um, and our understanding of theology battles in the context of, 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 the, of, the, of the breakdown of the mind. But equally, I saw some incredible encounters with God in that particular unit amongst people who couldn't sing or connect or understand their circumstance, and God was very much there. Um, in 2005, I was a curate in, um, in central London and got very involved in the London bombings. I was sort of... Uh, I happened to live opposite the edge of a road station and I ended up in the actual response to uh, the bombings, which was very, very intensive. Mm. Um, I was this, was the seven seven this was the 7-7 bombings back in 2007. Yeah. Yeah. So I was cordoned in, actually, to the site and I opened a small hall, which then became the main triage centre for all of the emergency services. Um, I experienced what I'd call second-hand trauma, which is very hard to sort of understand, but it's... It's sort of watching a circumstance unfold, not necessarily as a participant or a victim, but as an observer. Um, and then the experience I had was similar to the sort of experiences I had people who went to the tsunami to help in the restoration work, anticipate, well, didn't anticipate, which was actually following exposure to trauma. Secondarily, you can actually also experience quite significant post-traumatic stress. Mm. And uh, what, what did that feel like, Will? Well, it was quite terrifying, Jane. I mean, I... I, I, we, we had, we were sort of heavily applauded, which in, following it, I got the commissioner's commendation and the church and the uh, assistant commissioner's commendation went to Hendon for these great award ceremonies. And uh, there was this part of it, which was all quite sort of grand, which, to which I felt both fraudulent, because I felt like we well, haven't really done anything other than pray for people and serve people coffees and teas and try and kind of encourage them through the day. So I felt like a fraud on that front, like I haven't really done anything. Uh, but also I felt um, confused about what it even meant. Um, a lot of people were asking me over the summer to sort of recount my story, which I found difficult and I felt angry about, but also I felt like I had to because it kind of, that's what people wanted. I, and it's such a significant part of history. And yeah, yes, absolutely. I can see why people wanted you to. But it kept the story alive in yeah. me to such an extent, actually, I never really dialed back from the pressure that I felt through those five days. And then when I was sort of back in work in the September after a summer vac, um, I suddenly started feeling incredibly cold, even though it was very hot, physically cold. And actually the blood was rushing away from my hands and feet, which is part of the panic attack process. So I'd feel suddenly cold and chilled. Then I started having strange symptoms, suddenly sweating profusely. And then I started shaking. So very physiological symptoms yeah, it's initially. It's fascinating, isn't it, the way your body yeah, is involved in all of this. I remember seeing yeah. Atonement is that, um, with Kira Knightley in the cinema on Baker Street screen. And then suddenly just sweat. I mean, mm. it's probably the calmest, most serene kind of costume dramas you could hope to watch. And there I am sort of sweating and tremoring in my seat. And um, I went off to do a, a, a university freshers' fair. And that was when I had my first proper panic attack, I think a few days after that. And... Um, yeah, I was just at a really difficult time, and I, I became extremely anxious, acutely anxious. Um, and as, alongside that, you feel depressed because you feel dislocated. And the church's response, my, my friend, I shouldn't say the church, my friend's response to a ministry was either to say, Will, you're just tired, or to say, Will, the devil's got into your life, and we need to cast out the devil. So half of my friends were signing me with the cross and with oil and trying to exercise me. And the other half of my friends were saying, look, don't worry about it. You're just knackered out. You just need to have a rest. And 
only my really good friend, Vanessa, who was a Harley Street psychologist, and my other really great friend from Cambridge, Rob Waller, who I work with now, who's a consultant psychiatrist, actually spoke sense. But you know, they said, look, well, this is not explicitly Christian. It's not a sort of spiritual issue. Not that, not that the enemy doesn't prowl around and have an influence in these issues, but this is not a spiritual issue you're carrying within you. This is, an, you know, this is a challenging life issue. And this is a psychological problem. It's not just that you're tired. This is way beyond tiredness. And um, I received fantastic treatment. Um, I had to take medication for a little while. I had some therapy. I did an awful lot of personal work, reading, study, rest. Changed my perspective about life, really. And God was in all that. Mm -hmm. um, and having recovered, I then asked bigger questions like, if this is what a priest experiences around mental health, what does the congregation experience? And as soon as I started talking about that, people started saying things to me like, oh my goodness, I hear, I hear you had a bit of a wobble. I've been on antidepressants for six years. Yeah. Can you help me? Yeah. Suddenly people come out of the woodwork in yeah. church life who all have all kinds of struggles which they yeah. never felt able to talk about beforehand. Absolutely. And, yeah. and actually leaders, what was, what was fascinating to me was some leaders um, sort of tried to deny what I was experiencing because that kind of let the cat out of the bag that we're actually we're, we're kind of vulnerable. Um, and other leaders kind of phoned me up and whispered down the line, hey, Will, it's so-and-so. Um, I've got a problem. I hear you've had a problem. Can, can we chat? Now, obviously, we, that's all confidential yeah. to, to those conversations. But part of me was thinking, guys, if we, and ladies, if we don't step forward um, and be honest about the struggles of the mind, then we're doing a disservice to a huge amount of our congregations. And I mean, now, mind and soul, we've been doing it for 11 years. And we have more than two and a half million hits a year. Uh, and we have just, you know, articles read 10,000 plus times because people are, there's so many people with such significant need as far as the emotional world's concerned. Yeah. And it sounds as though you're saying that quite a lot of the church doesn't really have a theology and understanding of God that enables them to cope with this. So um, they either want to deny it's happening or they want God to come in and fix it instantly. Yeah, I think that's absolutely I mean, I think that this, this all goes back down to the sort of theology, you know, what is yeah. suffering... Um, Leibniz, the whole sort of 1710 outlook, you know, how can God stand in um, being a good God? And, you know, we, can, we live in this world full of suffering, Jane. I mean, uh, this is the kind of heart of the problem. And yeah. we either deny suffering, no, well, you're just tired, or somehow God becomes responsible for our suffering, in which case God becomes bad. That, that can't happen either. Um, and somehow, I think, physically, we're more able to deal with the paradox of suffering but mentally, we really struggle to accept that. It, it's easier to compartmentalise a part of your body than it is to actually deal with a separation in your mind. And it does, it does, I suppose, draw us back to a, a more um, kind of holistic anthropology, an idea that we are not just bodies or minds or, or, or spirits, but we are whole. And all these things are integrated in a, in a much more complex way than we often think and, and I suppose often you know because churches aren't sometimes very good not just churches other institutions also aren't very good at handling mental health issues um, and it often goes back to an anthropology which doesn't really grasp how extraordinarily sensitive and the and, and um, we are as people yeah mm -hmm. and that actually we, we are these very very sensitive ecosystems of humanity <laughs> that can be easily um, blown off course by all kinds of different things, yeah. which then raises the, the wider questions of what what it means to flourish as a human being. Yeah. But I mean, what was interesting, Graham, about going back to the uh, senile dementia clinic 
was that I could see people flourishing in their humanity you know, in a supernatural way, despite the breakdown of their mind and their body. Um, there was a, you know, several, there was a lady who couldn't speak, who, when I sat down, I sat, often sat down, and she, was, she, she enjoyed touch, so I would often hold her hand so she could feel someone was with her. But I would try and sing very badly hymns to her, and it would access a part of her mind, and she began to be able to sing along with me. Um, and God was very much in that moment. It sort of, it was like the Holy Spirit was bypassing her cognition. But I, 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 I sense that looking across my experience of, sort of engaging with this stuff theologically as well as practically is that it's still sort of a Platonite outlook about the mind. In, in sometimes in the church, this they had this um, newtocracy in mind. You know, a government that was ruled by in, intelligence, and it was the it was this learning was the heart of. The person, yeah. and I, I, you know, my, one of the wrestlings I have is that we still maybe carry some of that forward. Yeah. That it's it's in our we have a hierarchy of the mind rather than you know a central um, essence of the spirit of God within us as being the seat of who we are as people. Yeah. Uh, that's really important when you're struggling with mental health because actually you can rather than being terrified you're losing yourself, you can recognise you're actually you you are. Yeah. You know, you are who you are, not because of your ability to think clearly, but because of something far deeper than that, something beyond that. I remember going to a, um, again, m many years ago, spending some time in a, a um, it was a kind of home for people with deep, long-term mental health um, issues, disabilities, and so on. And I remember it, it, it struck me that I think at the time, my general approach to kind of you know, preaching the Christian faith was you preach a kind of intelligible sermon and you expect people to understand it and acknowledge it and to somehow assent to these statements about faith that I was making and somehow response was all cognitive. It was a very, you know, yes, I agree with that statement and I put my faith in Christ sort of thing. And I, I started soon realized when talking to this group of people that that really wasn't going to happen at all because that just wasn't the way that they communicated. And it raised the question, I think, for the first time for me, what, what is a what is a full response to God? Um, because I remember thinking, you know, it, it can't be that these people are not made in the image of God. Of course, they're made in the image of God. Um, but if their response to God is not primarily cognitive, intellectual, and is another form of, of response, and I think I came to the view in some way that, that their response to whatever they received of the love of God through me and through other people around was somehow their response to God whether that was cognitive or not. But then that raised the question of what about the rest of us? Um, it's not just people in, in places like that who are expected to respond to God in other ways than just the, the, the cognitive intellectual uh, as well. So um, it raises that, that big question for me, is, you know, that, that our response to God is much fuller and broader than just that intellectual centre of the mind. And, and inevitably we can't help focusing on our response to God, as though that is the main thing. Whereas, of course, God's response to us is actually the main thing, and God's response is faithful and constant and um, irrespective of whether we're understanding or, or responding appropriately. God is God. Um, and, I, uh, and I think that's, that's one of the things that the sort of Christian theology of sacraments enables us to access, isn't it, is that absolute faithfulness of God to created beings. Um, shown in the in primarily in the incarnation, but then in the in the things that then get meaning because God becomes human. Um, and sacraments themselves are not primarily cognitive things. It's not about understanding. They're really not. You the don't have. They it's don't, about touch. Yes. It's about taste. 
about community. It's about yes, um, and I, I mean I I remember Graham a, um, a lecture you gave about Pascal. Heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. Which um, uh, which again you know as an in, as those of us who teach academic theology, it's quite hard to know how to process that, isn't it? Because it it sounds as though that's in some way putting down the the, the cognitive, which is not what we yeah. want to do either. I mean, my question for you, Will, is it? I mean, when you read a text like you know Romans twelve, you know about by the renewing of your minds, how do you read that? How do you read that phrase that if we are to be renewed in our in our minds, that could be read in a kind of intellectual way? You know, your thinking needs to be changed. Um, from the perspective, you know, mind and soul is the name of your organisation. Yeah, I think. That, I mean, of course, that there's something very um, constructual there. The renewing of our minds. I mean, you know, we we think. Clearly, if you like, there's, 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 you know, when you work with people with serious and injuring mental health problems, you pray for the renewing of their minds in a very constructed way, because actually, no one I've ever met with a significant mental health problems has, has said I, they don't want to think more clearly in a in a constructed level. But I think, you know, Paul's 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 looking for far more than the renewing of the mind. I mean, he 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 counts all of his intellectual training as rubbish compared to the knowledge of knowing Christ as his Lord and Saviour. So everything that previously he thought qualified him, he now sees as, as something that disqualifies him. But the things he thought disqualified him, actually are now the things that qualify him. Yeah. So I think that there's something that we need to, obviously we need to get, we need to get this in perspective, a constructional aspect of the renewal of the mind is a good thing, and healing is, is something that we're, we're seeking. But actually, the renewing of our minds is the renewing of that integrated mind, body, and spirit. You know, we're we're here to together collectively. And I think Paul was also speaking in a to um, to a Roman society which had elevated the mind over the the, the, the body. And we know that you know there was there was great esteem in being educated, um, and. Paul's renewal of the mind wasn't the sort of renewal of the mind that they would have anticipated. It wasn't about becoming a better philosopher. It was about actually renewing your mind and having it reorientated to God. And so I would take Paul's uh, you know, references to the mind to mean the heart to a 21st century charismatic Christian as much as it does mean um, the way in which we're thinking in terms of cognitive clarity. But also the body, the verse before that in Romans 12 yeah. talks about presenting our bodies. So that's how we tell that our minds are renewed because it's actually the whole of us. It's not something that just goes on intellectually. Sure. Yeah. I guess one area is this whole thing of how you deal with mental health issues within church society and so on. I mean, turning it around a little bit in terms of um, what it looks like to have a kind of positive mental attitude, health. I mean, is that something you think about quite a bit? And, and, and what, what, what would you say about a kind of Christian vision of mental flourishing, if you like? Yeah, I think that's, that's, really, I mean, that's really where I do my work, Greg. Right? Mm-hmm. I work with um, a consultant psychiatrist and clinical psychologist, and Rob, who's a psychiatrist, has a lot of work with seriously enduring mental health problems. And we, we, you know, that's very much a core part of what we do as, as an organisation. I, I do a lot of work around the area of staying well, um, and I, you know, I think so many people go to the gym to, you know, to keep their body in good order, but actually don't think about looking after the one thing that operates everything that they use in the gym, which is which is their mind, which is their particularly how do we how do we stay well? I think in an increasingly pressurised society, and in a, in a world where we're bombarded with anxiety-inducing messages. Um, there's never been a time when we've needed to be more cautious and aware of how to flourish mentally and emotionally. 
And so I, I particularly am interested in um, what, what I'd call sort of preclinical issues. So things like persistent worry um, or um, persistent guilt that doesn't go away through confession uh, or um, perfectionism. Uh, these kind of these issues are, are really rife in the church and, and in the world at large, and uh, they're often dismissed out of hand as sort of, you know, either inconsequential or they're denied because people say, well, like, I don't really want to talk about my worry problem. That feels like a sin. I think we need to be a bit more authentic yeah. about that. So a lot of time spent using what are called cognitive behavioral therapy tools or outlooks to sort of actively work on the changing of our view of our experience but also looking at areas of um, living more ex in a more accepting way. So mindfulness techniques for Christians, for example, or radical acceptance. Um, I, I found that I mean, some, some of the theologies that we see passed around sort of denying suffering or claiming healing that hasn't happened um, or outright denying an experience because it doesn't seem to fit with our theological view. None of that seems healthy to me. And it seems, in my mind, to be storing up problems uh, for people in advance, both spiritual problems uh, and also psychological problems. So problems that say, actually, I feel like I've been living in the emperor's new clothes for the last few years, and actually my reality doesn't match up to what I've been claiming. Or, um, actually, I'm now so overwhelmed with the unaddressed issues that I'm, I've, I've, I'm now having a clinical yeah. problem. And that, yeah. Sorry, God, yeah. that sort of suggests that there are areas of life that God can't be part of, right. doesn't it? If there are, you know, if we're denying um, yeah. and you know, pretending that's nothing to do with our Christian life, then it's suggesting actually God is hampered in where he can be our, our friend and saviour. And I think for me, Jane, suffering is always the question. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it, it always goes back to suffering, especially there's a sort of anguish which is hard to describe unless you've been depressed, mm -hmm. uh, that you feel... It, there's no physical pain like it, but if you could, if you could contain depression in your leg and you'd saw your leg off, I mean, it's that it's 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 that malign. Mm -hmm. And so, and this is not to sort of discount or diminish anyone's suffering or pain, but 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 those who suffer in their mind suffer in an extraordinary way. There is such a need to know God in suffering when you suffer in the mind, and I think the. The denial of suffering as part of the loving experience of God is one of the key problems that I face theologically. To actually, uh, it's very easy to pray for people and say, well, look, God doesn't want you to suffer. Well, now we know that's true in that God is, is a loving God. But suffering is also part of the Christian experience. What we need to know in our suffering is that we're not disconnected from the love of God, that God hasn't abandoned us. I, I, I found a lot of uh, comfort in the writing of Simone Weil, the... Um, the uh, mm. the French mystic from mm. the, the the early sort of the nineteen nineteen thirties suffered herself quite a who bit. Who suffered incredibly in the body yeah. and and interestingly, I mean, some of that suffering was self-inflicted. Self yeah, but, um, but also, yeah. I'm sure, having read some of her work, that she yeah. was also suffering from some sort of mental health sure. problem. Yeah. But, um, she she helpfully wrote that the Trinity and the cross are the two poles of Christianity: the first perfect joy and the second perfect affliction. Now, if you think about the Trinity as being a unity of community, the cross is a place of separation. But there's no less love in the crucifixion than there is in the Trinity. In fact, what joins the Trinity and the crucifixion is the love of God. So the love of God is not diminished in the cross. In fact, it's as full in the cross as it is in the Trinity. And so long as you find yourself 
between the Trinity and the crucifixion, you're never lost to the love of God. I, I like to think about the, um, she writes about the robber on the cross who, who, who sort of makes friends with Jesus who, you know, in that moment and finds sanctuary in Jesus. It's like his cross is inside the line between the crucified Christ and the communing Trinity. But the other, the other criminal on the cross is like on the other side of Christ where he's unable to sit between Trinity and crucifixion. Therefore, he, he sits outside of the love of God and therefore he feels incredible anguish. And I think I like to sort of help those who are struggling in the minds to recognize that, that God, there's no diminishment in the love of God in the crucifixion and it might feel abjectly painful, but God is still present in their suffering. Well, in a sense, you could say that I think the, the cross is the shape that the love of God takes within a fallen world. Right, perfect. And um, so there actually is no contradiction between God as a perfect trinity of loving persons in one being and the expression of the cross, because when you put that love into a broken, fallen world, it, it, it will always end up on a cross. Yeah. But so it enough. won't end up on a cross because it'll end up resurrected yeah. because life defeats death that suffering is not the final word and that's why it seems to me that you know the church ought to be a kind of place where we can actually take suffering seriously we can look at it in the face because we know it's not the last word and there's something so, you know, if you have a view of the world where actually suffering is always going to be there there is no final victory over suffering actually it becomes so bleak that you almost can't look at it because it's just eternal yeah. And of course, we don't believe that suffering and evil are eternal. We believe they're they're there, yeah. and they need to be taken with utmost, with real real seriousness, but not utmost seriousness mm-hmm. because we take goodness with utmost seriousness. And so we can actually look at evil and suffering in the in the face and acknowledge it for what it is, and deal with it, but not run away from it. That's the key thing. I mean, and that's what I'd call radical acceptance. The radical acceptance isn't disempowerment. Radical acceptance isn't accepting defeat. Radical acceptance is actually sort of actively embracing our circumstances, not, well, not, not loving them, but actually pressing into them in the confidence of the resurrection that is already dwelling within us, that actually we can push the other way. It's denial. I mean, I've often talked to Christians about you know, suppression, repression, and denial, the sort of the three evils in the psychological world. But radical acceptance helps us to and habituate to our circumstances to actually take away the pain that we don't need to feel, the, sort of the anguish and the associated pains, to really feel the pain that we are actually feeling and to, and to sense the power and the presence of God in that, knowing that there's resurrection life that's going to spring through that. Well, just to pick one of the areas you were mentioning a moment ago, the area of guilt um, and how you, how you deal with, with guilt, which doesn't seem to go away quite quickly with confession. And I'm wondering how, to just explore a moment, how that relates to a kind of Christian doctrine of atonement. And I know, Jane, you've been thinking a bit about the cross and about how, how that works, if you like, and, and, and a sort of theology of atonement. And I'd love just to explore that a moment for, for a moment, how a Christian theology of atonement speaks to guilt and particularly persistent guilt that doesn't seem to... And again, I mean... It can sometimes be, and obviously this isn't done deliberately, it's not trying to blame people who feel guilty, but it can sometimes be a a feeling of how really radically important I am. This guilt is too big even for God to deal with. 
Um, and um, and obviously, when you're in it, that's not what it feels like. It doesn't feel like you're you're making yourself very important. But actually, that is what it is. You become you and your guilt become the centre uh, of the world, and you sort of think this is too much for God. Um, and if you put it like that, then you then you realise what you're saying. You think, of course, it's not. Nothing is too much for God. Um, it, what you know, the the whole point of the cross is that is God is able, as, as Graham said, to go into. Um, things to be with us but that's not the end of what God can do under those circumstances God has always God is always life always creative always resurrection I think that's absolutely right Jane I, I mean my, I would say that um, that false guilt is true pride in that we believe that if we'd done it any other way we could have done it on our own yeah. if we if we'd not done X Y Z we would have been worthy on our own without Christ so there's a there's clearly an aspect of 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 that false guilt where we believe that we've, you know, it's even beyond God's capability that longs for a time when we could have been credited with grace and goodness, you know, in our own strength. And actually, the best part of guilt is coming back into submission to Christ and recognizing that he's already done it. Mm -hmm. the, the issue that I've spent a long time addressing with Rob, and we, we wrote a book around, um, around guilt, called, just called The Guilt Book, was that whilst there is that guilt issues is sort of a sin issue and a confession issue. We often give people the wrong medicine. You see, you know, we, we would say that the cross is the right medicine for true guilt, because for true guilt you need a true saviour. In fact, there's no other remedy in the world for true guilt other than a true Christ. Mm -hmm. The the issue that many people face in, in our in our in our research particularly was clear was that was actually there's something else. And it was something that was known to Spurgeon and the Wesley brothers, and um, it was something that was written about quite heavily. Uh, and, and that was what we call scrupulosity, mm. which was a which is a kind of a, dis, a psychological distortion of guilt within the human mind. And it it, it struck us that actually, uh, until the particularly the French psychoanalysts began to make an appearance, the church was happy to talk about two speeds on guilt. It was either true guilt, for which you needed a true saviour, or it was an affliction of the mind called scrupulosity. And that's where we get the word scruples from, obviously. That it was, it was some sort of um, sticky infection in the mind, which didn't enable the person to get free from the thoughts they were having, which were condemning them. And the trouble with scrupulosity is you cannot treat it with a cross, because actually the person isn't truly guilty. They just are imagining their guilt. So the efficacy of the crucifixion doesn't work on something that isn't really, um, you know, isn't really sin. But the being being muddled in your mind, if you like, having carrying scruples and obsessing over these often extremely minor things, is an activity that needs to be stepped away from. And many of those. Um, many of those evangelists wrote about this issue and were sort of saying, look, this is a problem we need to get away from. Bunyan, um, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, struggled terribly uh, with this. And he wrote another book about his terrifying thoughts and ordeals. He was afflicted with an um, obsessive compulsive disorder, we would describe it now, of which a component is guilt. And actually, it's a psychological phenomenon, not a spiritual phenomenon. The trouble is that so many Christians go back in confession, and confession becomes an addiction. So actually, if you think about OCD, it's obsession, uh, obsession and compulsions, and it's become a disorder. The obsession is the feeling, I am guilty, and the compulsion is, Jesus, forgive me for my sins, and that's the outworking. And many of the people you know, we would interview you know, would be praying, 
Jesus sorry prayers pretty much for 90% of their day under their breath. But they, they had received the forgiveness of God, but their cognition was broken. And so we helped them to use, again, what we call exposure and response prevention techniques to stop confessing, to stop um, obsessing and actually to begin to walk free in in the forgiveness that they've already received. That's the key point. Because it's not a healthy place to be, is it, to be constantly confessing? Oh, absolutely. Because actually when you meet somebody, you meet them occasionally, who are always saying sorry for something, mm-hmm. always apologising for almost for who they are. Yeah. And you feel there's something quite uneasy, un- deeply unhappy, quite wrong. That's not human flourishing, to be constantly in a place of of apology for who you are. Um, yes, there is a place for confession, but the rhythm of confession and, and absolution is a crucial one in Christian faith. And I suppose it may be that with scrupulosity, it is a case of enabling people to access to confession. Because I guess someone who has, who has that sort of obsessive scrupulosity is someone who who's somehow unable to, to grasp, unable to get hold of the fact that, yes, it's all right, you're forgiven, Forgi- don't worry about it, it's okay, you can move on from this. They just cannot do that. And so it is about sort of helping them access that yeah. and be able to move on from, from, from that place of confession because that's not where you're meant to be longer and term. Doubt and guilt are the two components of that particular yeah. disorder. Sure. Yeah. So you, 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 you doubt, you feel guilty and you doubt, and then you confess, and then you feel good for a few moments, and then you feel doubt again. Yeah. A, a priest said to me, um, an Anglo-Catholic priest in Twickenham, said that he was visited, he offered, offered full kind of Catholic confession, um, and he said a, an elderly lady knocked on his door and said, Father, would you hear my confession? And he said, of course. So she came in and she confessed for about 45 minutes, and then he's, you know, she felt much better and she went away. But the next day she came back again and asked to be heard again. And he said I, he heard her a second time, and actually much of it was the same as it had been the day before. And, on, and she went away again and said, you know, really, we're done now, you know, receive forgiveness. And the third day she came back again, and he said, I refused her confession because I said, look, you've confessed, now you need to receive the forgiveness that you've received. So there, there, is, a, there is a psychological problem at work there that has to be addressed in order for you to receive the goods of what it is to feel truly forgiven. And that's a journey for many of those people. And do you think a sort of regular practice of confession as it, as it used to be practised in most of Christianity would actually help? That there's a place where you take this, it's heard by another person who's hearing it on God's behalf, as it were, hearing it as God's ambassador in that relationship, and then says to you, God does forgive you, you need to hear this. And, and whether that sort of, we as evangelicals and Protestants have, have um, in a way, um, given up that, that practice and felt that we ought to be able to deal with this all by ourselves. Um, and obviously it can become, you know, just a mechanical thing, yeah. confession. But you wonder if there is um, actually a place for re-establishing it within evangelical discipline. I think there's a place for, for a sense of tactile finality. And that's why the sacraments are so important, because you touch and you taste that God is good. Because we're so heady again, we often remove clues for people that give them the assurance of God's presence with them. And so I often encourage people who are suffering from these sort of issues to actually feel their genes, you know, put their hands on their legs, feel feel the linen on the the altar cloth, hold the wafer and taste it, hold it. Connect more broadly than just with your mind. Because when you're in a moment of doubt and you're struggling again with guilt, you can almost feel the texture of the wafer 
that you receive to remind you of the goodness and love of God. Feel you, the texture of God's forgiveness. Yeah, yes, and, and, yeah. and, 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 and yeah. taste the flavour of the wine in your mouth yeah. because that will remind you of the fact that God has forgiven you once and for all. I can't, yeah, I can't help thinking of Luther. I always think of Luther as he knows. <laughs> well, I'm sure Will could tell us what you think of Luther, having well, been know, taught. Well, I know, a lot of good things. <laughs> but of course, he, you know, he, he was someone who, who, again, suffered from that same scrupulosity. I mean, a lot of, a lot of his struggles in the monastery were... And, and his, his confessor, Johannes von Staupitz, would tell him off for kind of keeping on confessing the same thing over and again, over again. It's quite interesting, I think, that, that the, 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 the remedy for that that he found was bound up with faith and doubt. It was about um, actually realising that to go on carry, carrying on confessing sins wasn't really the, the remedy at all. It was, and in a sense, that was an expression of doubt. It was an expression of saying that I don't actually believe that, that Christ is my righteousness. I have to somehow establish it myself. And actually, the, the, the breakthrough for him came through that this, this, this sense that you know, God's righteousness is given to us in Christ. It is God's gift. And actually, then, then it was sacramental. Because, of course, for him, the, um, the Eucharist, the Mass, as he would call it, the Lord's Supper, this tactile presence of Christ. And for him, you know, it was the real presence. This was not just a kind of reminder of Jesus having died for us on the cross uh, before this was actually the real presence of Christ. How he didn't say, you know, he wouldn't want to go into explaining how that's happened. But you know, Christ is actually given to us in bread and wine, and that was almost crucial for him in in overcoming that sense of ongoing, persistent guilt that he could not quite get rid of. It was the gift of Christ, actually, not just in word but also in sacrament, both forms that seem to be so crucial for him. The physicality of being together is a key part of this. You know, we talk, we talk about emotional health and emotional flourishing. It depends on human connection and connection with God. And, and because of our dislocated and isolated world experience, so many of the people we see, even if we're sitting, sitting next to them in church on a Sunday, are keeping these narratives hidden. And, and as a result, they become more incessant and more problematic. Whereas when, when we have the genuine encounter with a friend or we make a genuine confession to a confessor or we, we, we actively participate in the sacraments, we, we are we're grounding ourselves in a reality that can overwhelm the mumblings and murmurings of our minds. And even if the mumblings and murmurings of our minds continue on, and there's such respite in that place of a grounded reality. We need to feel God because you know, then when we feel God, we know God's presence. You know, it's, I believe, Lord, now help my unbelief. My unbelief is helped by, by those who I'm, you know, sharing fellowship with in real terms and, and who I'm vulnerable with. It's wound to wound. It's, it's, it's a reality that gives me assurance. I think that's, what we, that's why tearing down the barriers relating to mental and emotional health in the church is so fundamental to everyone's recovery. Fascinating. Really interesting discussion. Thank you, Will, very much. Um, I mean, if uh, I'm, I'm conscious people listening to this may well think, well, I, I'd love to know, know more about how to deal with issues of worry, anxiety, um, guilt, fear, and so on. Where would you suggest they go? Where would you... Well, I mean, you can obviously have a look at the website, which is mindandsoul.info. Uh, we've also written a pack for all of the UK churches with a charity called Livability called the mentalhealthaccesspack.org, and that provides PDFs on every major diagnosable illness and gives the church instruction for how to support recovery. So that's written with psychiatrists, with myself as a priest, psychologist, with a team of other leaders to try and provide the best possible response. If there are leaders listening and you're struggling with how to support people with mental health problems in your churches, that's a pack 
for you. And uh, Rob and I together have written the worry book, the guilt book, and the perfectionism book, which are all available on Amazon and other good Christian bookstores. Very good. So thank you, Will, very much. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jay. It was great to have you here, Will. Thank, thank you. you. And uh, so it's goodbye from all of us, goodbye. and uh, we will see you on another Godpod soon. was Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. <laughs>